This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. These words, non-consensual sex, have served to protect the patriarchy and perpetrators. So that's my first thing. I hate that we have to keep thinking about how do I keep myself safe? Like that is just, we're still having the wrong conversations. How about, how do you not rape people? Like I've literally thought, I'm going to make a bumper sticker and put it on all the cars I see that says, don't rape people. I just don't know how hard this is because I'm sick of survivors feeling like, how do I keep myself safe? How do I keep myself safe? I promise we are talking about this, but it's still the wrong conversation. How do we not let people rape people? How about that conversation? (laughs) Today, I'm back in conversation with one of my favorite somatic psychologists and sex therapist, Dr. Holly Richmond. I've had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Holly on the podcast before in her episode titled Human Beings Over Human Doings, where we covered mindful sex and intimacy along with the foundations of establishing lasting connections and relationships. Today, Dr. Holly is on the show to talk all about her new book, Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex-positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life. What I love so much about my chat with Dr. Holly today, and you'll hear me mention it on the episode, is that regardless of whether or not you've experienced sexual trauma, the information and insight in this book speaks volumes on the topic of body literacy and healing. On this episode, we cover Dr. Holly's philosophy on surviving to thriving, unpack the realities of rape culture, discuss how trauma feels and can represent in the body, methods to address it, and mantras and modalities for reclaiming your pleasure. This conversation left me feeling so empowered and hopeful, and I know you'll feel the same way too. As a disclaimer, we do discuss sexual trauma, sexual assault, and rape in this conversation. So if this is something that triggers you, you can definitely go check out our first episode with Dr. Holly, Human Beings Over Human Doings. Without further ado, I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Holly Richmond. Dr. Holly, I just want to give you a really warm welcome back to the podcast. This is our second episode together. And just like I was sharing offline and when we were chatting offline, we kind of left off our last episode segueing or creating space for kind of this second episode to come up. So I'm just thrilled to be in conversation with you today. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And I do, I feel like we were anticipating this moment And I just, I can't thank you enough for being a supporter of Survivors and my work and this book, which I'm just, I'm really thrilled to talk about. Yeah, amazing. So today we are chatting all about Dr. Holly's new book called Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life. Before we get into all of what your book is about and your musings and your research and just this great conversation, 
I kind of want to check in with you and just see how you're doing lately, because I know that we're just living in the midst of wild times. And I just wanted to give like a temperature check and kind of ask how you've been faring everything lately. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that. People don't usually ask. So, and I'm sending that question right back to you. I've been okay. Not great. Just a lot of change in my life, like all good things, a move, but that's always stressful. And I honestly think getting back out into the world has been really hard on my immune system. I keep getting cold and just haven't really felt like I've built myself back up. So you and I are talking, you know, obviously right before the holidays. So I'm really looking forward to having some downtime. I love my work, but okay, I just need to like pause. Yes, I totally hear you. Here where I'm at, it's like, honestly, it feels like a little bit of a countdown. We're just, my partner and I are so ready for some time off. It just seems the holiday time is a really big push up until then everybody It's a bit quiet, which is so sacred and amazing that we still have that space to do so during the winter. But yeah, I totally hear you. Good, not great. And reentry has been interesting, kind of like it's been hard. I think even over dinner last night with my partner, we were talking and we were just like, he had to go. He works on set in the film and photo industry and he had to go on set. And he was like, that was really hard. Reentry is really hard. We have to like really honor that toughness. And we're not alone in that because I think everybody's struggling with it in some capacity. I do too. Just like how we're moving through the world, how it's different, how we want it to be, our imaginings about it. So it's just this renavigation process. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So tell me where you moved to because you were in New York City. I was. So I'm going to split my time, still licensed there, but moved south to be closer to my parents and honestly to be in warmer weather. I just... I'm from New York originally, but lived in California for a long time. We went back to the Northeast for several years. And I'm like, okay, I can't do the winters there. Found out, check. No, I can't do it. Just warmer climates, more sunshine. I'm looking at palm trees right now. So I'm really, really happy to, and we've only been here three weeks. So I'm just getting my feet on the ground, but it feels like a nice switch. Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody who lives in New York for a bit appreciates the pace and just weather changes when you do leave and you're like, okay, like I can have a little more room to breathe. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're transitioning well and just leaning into the ups and downs of it. But yeah, I just, I think I'm really excited to cover this book with you mostly because while I was reading it, I actually felt as though, and what's so beautiful about it, and I really want to give you this as a massive compliment, is that as much as this book is for sexual trauma survivors, it's also not. It's also for anybody who knows anybody who's gone through that, for anybody who's experienced any form of trauma, including micro traumas. So I found it so beautiful and encompassing of the human experience. So I just want to send that out to you. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. And that's really, that's it. And the reason I switched the focus when I did my dissertation, it was on sexual assault. The reason I said sexual trauma, because I want it to be all encompassing. And, you know, my introduction, I talk about it was bad enough. And I want everyone to come to the table and know that what they experienced was bad enough and that they deserve to feel better. And I hope there's enough tools in this book to help people feel better. I love that. I think when people hear the word sexual trauma, we think of like trauma with a capital T, which is valid and it exists and it is horrible. But 
there's also trauma with a little t. So I kind of would love to hear you explain that and the validity of the experience as a whole. So what we know about sexual trauma, any kind of sexual trauma, uh, abuse, rape, harassment, any of the shades of gray, gender violence, anything that's in there, it doesn't have to be violent. It only has to be non-consensual. So with most sexual abuse situations, they're not violent because a perpetrator with sexual abuse, they're going to be extra nice. That little person is going to get extra attention and feel like they're holding the special secret and that they're special. It's not violent, typically. Sometimes it is, but most often not. In date rape scenarios, it's often not violent. That idea of stranger rape, someone jumping out of the bushes and getting us or someone hiding in our car, that's a very, very small percentage of sexual trauma. What I'm writing about is most people's experience. The 14,000 hours now that I've spent working on sexual trauma, very little of that was violent and it was all bad enough and it was all horrible and we don't need to compare. So really just helping people to stop minimizing and feel what they're feeling. My gosh, yes. So often people think, well, my experience wasn't that hiding behind a bush, like horrible encounter. It was that more nuanced occurrence. It was subtle. It played out in a way that only after the matter did you realize, hmm, that wasn't actually consensual, right? I'd love to know, do you have any statistics on what sexual assault looks like, like the stats of it, how many people have really lived through some sort of trauma? In the language sexual trauma, you're going to get different stats because there's stats on rape, there's stats on sexual trauma, but where we are mostly globally with sexual trauma is one out of every three or four women and one out of every nine men. 88% is the perpetrator is someone known to the survivor. So then again, that's very small, just over 10% category that a stranger assault in any way. So I hope again that that normalizes for people what they've been feeling. And just like you said, the other mind fuck, I don't know if I can say that here, but the other thing that screws with survivors is I didn't fight back. And there's so many reasons you didn't fight back, but please know most survivors don't fight back because you don't even realize in the moment what's happening or you do realize and you're completely frozen or dissociated or you're fawning, which you and I will talk about the four trauma responses. So it's not until afterwards, it might be the hour afterwards, it might be the day afterwards, it might be the year, it might be 10 years afterwards when your body is screaming in chronic pain or you're having extreme anxiety that's now debilitating that you're finally putting the pieces together of, wow, that date rape did make a big difference in my life. So this book is just telling you, yes, I know it made a big difference and you're completely valid in feeling that way. And you do mention in the book, which is amazing, about how it's never too late to unpack this. And you talk about a lot of the time people feel like maybe they've missed their timeline to go to therapy about it or share it with a friend. So I'd love for you to debunk that a little bit. So I found this when I was first at a rape crisis center, unless I was doing crisis counseling. Crisis counseling means the event happened within the last six weeks. It's a very small percentage of what I did. On average, I was seeing people 10 years after their trauma, 10 years. So a 14-year-old that it happened to, now this 24-year-old is coming in. And again, that's an average, but it's this idea of living with the pain, living with the emotional dysregulation, living with dysfunctionality around sex, not being able to maintain a relationship. Finally, people get to a point, you could live with this for a year and be like, okay, that's enough. I need help. Or you can live with it for 10 years. 
I have a client right now who lived with it for 50 years. He is now in his 60s. He got abused as a child, lived with all of these dysfunctions, his high anxiety, his people pleasing, his conflict avoidance for 50 years. And now he finally came in. He's like, you know what? I'm not living like this anymore. I'm going to live my life. Mm, what a powerful moment. You must see people really at the moment when, because it's interesting when you seek therapy, there's a little bit of a moment when you're like, although you'll still be in your pain, you're in a place where you're like, I'm done feeling this way. I'm done. I'm fed up. I'm ready to see myself through this. For people who in general are like, okay, I've heard you guys talk about that trauma doesn't all need to be capital T trauma. What are some of the physical symptoms that we can kind of look inward to and recognize, oh, maybe that's actually a symptom of my trauma, whether that's anxiety, whether that's panic, et cetera. I'd love to kind of know like how the body speaks. Yes. And this is the somatic piece. And that's why I do the work I do because many trauma survivors are somaticizers. So these symptoms will come out in their body before their brain realized, oh, it was bad enough. This is, I'm connecting my trauma to these areas of dysfunction or just areas of pain in my life. So the four areas that I talk about in the book are emotional, physical, relational, and sexual. So you and I have touched on a few of the emotional. The most common are anxiety, panic, dysregulation, not trusting the present moment. So kind of PTSD symptoms would be in there. So having a hard time separating the past from the present, hard time sleeping. When we get into the physiological chronic pain, headaches for sure will be there. It can be anger issues, though those could be relational as well. So the relational is insecure attachment styles, confusing sex with love, and then the sexual pain disorders, compulsivity around sex, or completely shutting down around sex. These are just a few, but in the book, you've got about 20 lists of the most common. This can be urinary tract infections. I mean, things that people don't really think about, fear of needles. I didn't even know all of these until I sat for all of these hours and I was like, wow, there are a lot of survivors who are afraid of the dentist, a lot of survivors who are afraid of the needles, a lot of survivors who have vaginismus or dyspernia, which is pain during sex or pain with any kind of penetration, mulvidinia, vulva pain. So it again, like I'm constantly learning too, but it's amazing when I look at a survivor and I'm like, oh, that's a really common symptom, mm. like the relief in their face. Like, of course, they hate that they're having this symptom, but when I can normalize it and say, oh gosh, you're not alone here. Here's this list. Here you are on this list. I know there's something we can do about it. Yes. Oh my gosh, what a relief. Exactly as you just said. It's so funny how when we go through really, really hard things, we suddenly categorize ourselves as alone. And a really big component of what you talk about in this book and what I loved so much and what I've even experienced in my own healing processes of different things has been community, has been realizing that I'm actually not alone and that my healing process does involve knowing that and proving that and kind of surrounding myself with others who might be in that same threshold. Absolutely. The three parameters, and you and I have talked about them a little bit, the control, pleasure, and connection, that third one connection is so big most survivors have their shit together like i could do this i can do this by myself 
I've taken care of myself. Yes to all of those, but to really heal, I know it has to happen in connection. It has to be some amount of vulnerability. I'm not saying that to heal from sexual trauma, you have to be in a romantic relationship, but there has to be relationships of support and purpose around you. So friends, family, support group, volunteer work that you're passionate about, just something, some kind of connection that makes you feel held and seen. You know what's funny is this actually just made me think as you said that was, I'm sure, and tell me if I'm right or wrong or if this might be a through line, but it seems to me like anybody who's really been through trauma is quite a high functioner or there's usually a, not all the time, but I would even put myself in the category of someone who's been unlearning their super high functionality and concept of I can do this alone and I don't need anybody else and being like, okay, let's maybe like rewire that and where did that come from and everything else. But it's really interesting how you kind of can get into that driver's seat. You are so right. Most survivors that sit in my office, and this is true even when I was at the Rape Crisis Center. So when people weren't having to pay for therapy, it's community mental health accessible to everybody. I was still seeing a really highly functional clients, right? Really highly functional survivors. It usually goes one of two ways. So chaos for some, but a smaller percentage. So it becomes compulsivity or addiction issues. So there's that. A lot of the survivors I see are on the other side where they get more into constriction. Like I can do my life myself. I don't need any help. I'm going to control food. I'm going to control my job. I'm going to control relationships. I'm going to control where I live. And that's all great. But to really heal, we have to have this sense of connection there. It's so true. And then along with the other components, that process for thriving is the control pleasure and connection, which we'll get to. I want to kind of like hold off on that, but I really kind of want to sit for a minute and kind of sharing with listeners like what it's really like to be in the seat of experiencing trauma and the kind of those indicators. So I'd really love to chat a bit about that trifecta, which is the pain, shame, and suffering that you identified. And I'd really love to unpack that theory a bit. Yeah. So the pain is what happens during your sexual trauma. That is the actual experience of it. The shame is how we feel about what happened. And the shame for almost every survivor is much deeper than the pain that happened during the experience. Because again, for many survivors, it's not painful in the way that we want to talk about pain. There wasn't blood, there wasn't a scar, there might not have been big bruises, but as we move in the world and try to live our lives, it is so profoundly painful. And we don't know where to put that because we feel like we had some part in it and then that turns into shame. So the shame, again, just Renee Brown's work here is absolutely the benchmark. Guilt is I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. Survivors didn't even make a mistake. There shouldn't be any guilt. I don't care what you did. I don't care what you were wearing. I don't care where you were. I don't care how much you drank, how many drugs you did. The only reason you were raped is because there was a rapist present. The only reason you were sexually abused when you were a child is because there was a perpetrator present. There's no guilt here to have. It turns into shame because we feel like we didn't do enough to say no. We didn't do enough to make it not happen. And just unraveling from that is really a core piece of this work. I think shame is a really interesting character. I'm laughing because I don't know if you, do you watch Big Mouth? Do you know that show on Netflix? Oh yeah, sure. (laughs) The shame monster Mm -hmm. who is absolutely hysterical and just lurks in every corner and works on overdrive and just never takes time off or a paid vacation. And that's just how shame operates. And so what I think is interesting kind of about it is that 
I think a lot of times it's so hard to wrap your mind around any sort of trauma, any sort of shame that we kind of end up compartmentalizing it and going into autopilot, but it really still lives in the body. I know we touched on somatic work, but I really would love to hear for those who don't quite know what somatic experiencing and somatic work is, what that process is like, because I think that's what really makes your work stand out so much compared to kind of what a lot of literature around this covers is really the somatic. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, the somatic goes into the suffering, right? So the suffering. So we have the experience of the pain. We go into the shame and from there, the suffering unravels, right? So again, whether that's emotional, physical, relational, or sexual. In somatic psychology, I'm listening as closely to what my patients are saying with their words as to what they are saying with their body. So I'm looking at body language. I'm looking at all these symptoms that they haven't yet put together and trying to make sense of it. So the suffering, it becomes less of something to avoid because we know that doesn't usually work. The more we fight against it in that way, it doesn't work, but something to understand, tracing it back to its roots and really being able to treat what the problem is, which is the shame, which is maybe saying I was sexually abused. I didn't have any other choice because I was 10. I was date raped. I didn't have any other choice because my body completely froze, but that was its way of taking care of me really letting us ourselves off the hook. And Tatiana, you know, there's a whole chapter in the book on shame and letting ourselves off the hook, understanding what your body did, and then it's really your friend, not your enemy. Mm, yeah. And you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, those four trauma responses that we have. I would love to hear more. Okay. So the first three, almost everybody knows it's fight, flight, freeze. And the fourth that we're just talking about more recently is fawn. I loved Pete Walker's book on complex PTSD. He talks about fawn beautifully. So fight sounds like what it is. You're fighting back in some way. So they're usually some physical force. That's just not an option for most survivors in most situations because you don't even know it's happening. You don't know it's wrong for any of the reasons. Flee, often not an option. So that's exactly what it sounds like too. You run away. You try to get away from the situation. Not often an option. Freeze is the most common response. I have a lot of survivors describe it as looking down on themselves so they can see themselves as if they're hovering above their body, they're hovering above their sexual trauma, and they can watch it, but they're so frozen and dissociated that they can't do anything about it. I can't even tell you how many thousands of times I've heard I was just laid there and waited for it to be over. And when you say it that way, it sounds really disempowering and like you have no agency and that you let this happen, but it's actually the opposite. That was your body taking care of you. Because if you had fought back, if you had tried to run away, something worse probably would have happened. So that freeze response is very, very adaptive. The fawn response is freeze, but being very nice about it. So being complacent, being compliant, I have one client I'm thinking about after the rape was over, she woke up because she had been drugged and her perpetrator offered her a glass of water. And she said, yes, thank you so much. She was really nice until she could get out of his apartment. She didn't know where she was. She was like, I just know I can't be here, that this isn't a safe place. So that fond response was really common. The other thing is sometimes a survivor will text her perpetrator back. So say the perpetrator, and I'm going to use she this time. So maybe she's still trying to text and engage and the survivor will text back just to try to avoid the conflict. 
And again, this is adaptive. Like that's very smart of you because you can't control crazy people. You can't control perpetrators. So just trying to keep things nice and controlled absolutely makes sense. Absolutely. I learned about the fawn response a couple months ago because that is in general a reaction that I've had to unlearn for myself, which is really around people pleasing. And I think a lot of people do it unknowingly where you'll leave yourself at the expense of someone else just to appease the situation. But I really like how you just reframed that too in the sense of that is actually a sense of controlling and kind of being able to feel as though there is a little sense of equilibrium in whatever encounter went down. So that's really interesting to kind of hear that from that perspective. Yeah, it is. It's just I'm trying to control the situation so I can get out of it safely. That's really all it comes down to. And how could we ever fault someone for doing that? Like that doesn't make sense. It's a very adaptive response. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting too, because I kind of kept going back to this concept while I was reading about how it's so easy for us to kind of like intellectualize an experience or versus feeling into an experience. And I guess I kind of want to hear from you just how we can better get out of our mind and start working with our bodies a bit more because I think we're not taught at all how to access what's going on inside on an emotional and a physical level. Like we're always up in our heads. And I know that a lot of times we like to ask kind of those why questions like why, 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 why me? Why is this happening? Why am I feeling this? Da, 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 and kind of going down this rabbit hole and that's so in the head. I'd love to kind of hear about getting into the body and maybe why those why questions are not the right approach per se. Right. Why questions work great for some people, but in my somatic psychology program, I was very much encouraged not ever to ask why, and I rarely will say why. So I ask how, and the sentence feels a little clunky until you get used to it, but why is a cognitive process how is a somatic process? How is about feelings? Again, it's process oriented. So I will ask my clients, how did you come to that decision? How do you know how you feel right now? So we're going into sensation. I'm asking them to tell me about their breathing. Even though I'm working virtually, I'll have them stand up. I'll have them shake. I can have them walk around the room, like just different things that are process oriented, get them back in their body because Sometimes it depends on where the survivor is in their process, but even when they're talking about it, there's still the chance that they can dissociate. And that's absolutely not what I want. That hasn't happened in my sessions in a long time, but we don't want that to happen. And how I know that I can prevent that from happening is helping a client feel safe, but also keeping him or her in her body and feeling like they have agency. Mm. Yeah, it's really crazy process when you can tap into that space and allow yourself permission to leave that headspace and drop into your body. I'm wondering if you have any tools you can share with us on the fly that allows people to drop into their bodies and maybe work that how process that we're speaking of for themselves when they're, you know, if they're feeling activated. Yes, for sure. I'll offer one now. And I want to say too, for anyone who's more interested in the book, as you said, like there are somatic exercises with every single chapter. So this is not just you reading, this is going to be you experiencing and feeling your body. One of the ones that I love the most is called from the bottom up. Most of the time with talk therapy, we're going from the top down. So we're starting with our head, right? And then maybe we'll get into the body and those sensations. With somatic psychotherapy, a lot of times we start from the bottom up and that's quite literally with our feet. 
So what I'll have people do is sit in a comfortable position with their feet on the ground where they can feel the floor, breathe into their feet just for like three breaths, and then pull the breath from their feet up to their knees, back down through their feet, and then from their feet up to their thighs, back down to their feet, from their feet up to their waist, until we're finally breathing through our whole body until it reaches the top of our head. And we're really feeling the sensations in our hands and our necks and our chest and our belly can feel all of that and then pay attention as we're going to what feels most activated or what feels most safe. And then that's a great entry point for me into the session instead of just going into the hell, well, what are you thinking today? It's the, what are you feeling today? Oh my gosh. I love that so much. I'll tell you why I love that because when you do an experience like that and for anybody who's kind of done any sort of breath work where you are searching for sensation in the body, sometimes you do kind of hit a kink. You're like, oh, as I was breathing in, my chest was tight or my stomach was in knots or my throat felt closed. And I think it's such a beautiful entryway into unfolding what that space holds, because usually behind that, I suppose, is emotion. And at many times, shame and trauma. So is that an entry into those types of conversations? Yes. And you just said that beautifully. So it's an entry into emotions and then it's a portal to meaning, right? And the meaning is that shame piece because the shame has been misdirected, that you are a mistake, that somehow you're at fault here. So we get to reframe the meaning, dig deep and figure out what it really is and help again, displace it, take it out of the body So when we do that, when the mind and body are integrated, when the mind and body are on the same page, that's when I know people are moving through the world in their most healthy way as their most authentic self. I also want to caveat to people. I know know sometimes this can seem intimidating, but you had a really beautiful quote where you said, pain is your way into healing and pleasure is your way out. And that was so stunning to me because I think, you know, a lot of the time people don't choose to heal. It's usually um, something screams so loud that (laughs) you're forced to go into that space. And I think for a lot of us, we can hang out in this so-called healing space for a while. And when you talk about pleasure as your way out of healing, it felt like that was like a page turn. And I haven't heard that rhetoric before because I think so much, especially in like social media spaces, like the conversation is so centered around healing these days, which I think is so beautiful. But I really love that you almost turn the page there. So this kind of segues me into my next question for you, which is really about going from surviving to thriving. And you marked out a few of those pillars, which are the control, the pleasure and connection process. But I really would love to hear more about your method here around how pleasure really allows us to heal. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's the word healing. It means something different to everyone. But what I found, why I started the research many years ago in the dissertation, I'm like, okay, healing. I know how to be a good trauma therapist and I know how to get us to the space. But then what? Like, what's next? Because to me, healing, the trauma wasn't enough. I wanted my clients to live these vibrant, beautiful, big, healthy lives. And the conversation that we weren't having in the trauma space was about pleasure. And so if we're talking about sexual trauma, how can we not talk about sex? How can we not talk about healthy sex? So one of the exercises I love to do with my clients, we have like sexual trauma on one pillar and sexual health on the other. We really compare those and this is what we're moving towards. So that thriving, it's not just about sexual health, but sexual health has to be a component. 
it can't just be i got through my trauma and i'm here and i'm healed to me that's not really enough again healing means different things to everybody but thriving is eros it's eroticism it's life force it's vitality it's vivacity it's desire it's wanting it's that feeling that most of us have touched before but it's hard to hold on to so just aligning more of our lives with that and that's what it means to me this pleasure point mm, yes because i do really think like a lot of the focus is on healing and then it's like that like okay and now what and i kind of love this reclamation of your life of your sexuality of your life force as you just said I would really love to go into like each of those pillars, if you will, which is around control, pleasure, and connection. Sure. So this was a grounded theory study. Again, the book is based on my dissertation and really expanded to all kinds of sexual trauma. So what I found in examining survivors' stories were there these three points, these three data points popped out. So control, of course, most of the time control sounds self-evident, right? Survivors are going to want to be in control of their body, who they're with, where they are, but control has two facets. So the first is maintaining control. Most survivors have this on lockdown. They've like, yep, I am in control. Got it. Yeah. Like you were talking to me before. Yeah. Over-functioning. The second part of control is the relinquishing control. We really have to learn to relinquish control. Where can we tolerate a little bit more vulnerability? Where can we tolerate risk in our lives? And not the kind of risk that is gonna cause us immense pain. I mean, Tatiana, risk can be, oh my gosh, instead of just eating half a bagel, because I feel safe doing that, I'm gonna eat the whole bagel today. So when I'm talking about relinquishing control, tolerating risk, it's these little micro things a client who had to put her keys in the same place or she would be, I mean, almost go into panic attack. I spent three weeks working with her on leaving the keys somewhere else in her apartment. So again, having control is, and it makes sense. Of course, she needs to be in control. Horrible things that happened to her. But when she can start relinquishing control, then she moves into the second component was just pleasure, right? This amazing space of pleasure and helping her discover desire and arousal so desire the psychological process of wanting arousal the physiological process of wanting and if and when they are ready translating that into their sexual template so really figuring out what's sexy what turns me on what kind of partner do i need how do i like to touch myself the self-pleasure protocol masturbation all of these little pieces and by the way if you are asexual or a gray like that is reclaiming pleasure as well that is reclaiming your sexuality that's not ignoring it that's making a decision so i love that reclaiming pleasure in our sexuality doesn't mean we're having a ton of sex and hanging from the chandeliers it's however you define it and then once we've got that pleasure and then it's connection how do i be in the world with others which you and i talked on already doesn't mean you have to be in a romantic or sexual relationship but it does mean you need to be in intimate relationships. Into me see, who knows you? When do you feel authentic and like you're heard and validated? Mm, my gosh, I just, I love the pleasure piece because I think so often we'll kind of like graze by it or we'll just be like, yeah, live in your pleasure. Okay, cool, moving on. And <laughs> I think it's like, I just really love that even the way you just spoke about it, like invigorated me to even want to be like, oh my God, like I haven't kind of given myself time and space to think about what my pleasure has been recently. It's been life has been hard as we were talking about at the beginning of this show. Like there's a lot going on. So I really love this idea of exploring it and reclaiming something that is yours, just all yours. And it can look and express itself differently each and every day. 
Right, right. And so often sexual trauma takes pleasure from us and not just sexual because we go into the over-functioning and the constriction, so much pleasure dissipates from our lives. So it's about building all of that back up. Yeah, I really also love the relinquishing control bit because it does speak to when you are in that over-functioning space that when you can kind of relinquish that control, then that space, to me, I'm kind of envisioning like a little space or pocket of space is made for that pleasure component to enter. Because when we're in what feels to me like when we're in such control and in such constriction, there's not enough room to evaluate something again and reclaim something for yourself. Yeah, beautifully said. And I'm not advocating for chaos. So the example with the keys I don't want her to lose her keys. I'm just asking if they could live in somewhere else where she knows that they're safe and she knows where they are in her apartment, right? So that was still big for her. That was still big. So again, I'm not advocating for chaos and losing anything. I'm just advocating for having spaciousness around this aspect of control so pleasure can find its way in. Absolutely. Can I share a story with you? Yeah. Okay. Ooh, pardon me also if I get a little emotional about this because I hadn't I really haven't shared this much, and this isn't a personal experience of mine, but something that I was kind of a part of, and it makes me want to ask questions for a specific type of person. So what really got me into starting the work with Bedside was when I was in university, college, and it was the first time that I had experienced around me the concept of unconsensual sex, rape, if you will sexual assault. For many people, that's kind of the territory where it usually tends to happen in kind of a young adult sexually active environment. And I was at a college where Greek life was really heavy. It was like a big social scene. And many, and specifically one of the fraternities, had a ritualized rape process as part of their initiation. And I went to a school where there was like heavy drinking culture, heavy party culture. And so many young girls, specifically girls, I'm going to say here for the most part, were lured, I would say, into so many unconsensual settings. And I share this story because I just want to shed light on this. When I was in university and this got out, the university covered this up as hard as they could because it was at the time during Me Too It could have very well made headliners. It could have ruined their admissions process. And being young and vulnerable at the time, it was hard to have a voice around it. And this happened to some dear, dear friends of mine, and it was so hard to see unfold. But I want... So first and foremost, I really share this story for anybody listening who's experienced something like that, who's maybe in college at the moment and sees that around them, that is absolutely not okay. But I have a question for you, and it's really for the young girls in college and people who are going through kind of student experiences and are in hazy environments where there is a lot of alcohol and drugs and just hormones flying across the roofs. And I really want to ask, what can we do in these spaces And how can we just equip ourselves not to like not be lured in because it was it's no one's fault that they had been in those circumstances. But what are some ways that we can begin to even have confidence around the conversation of consent, for example, or 
just have protocols with friends around red flags because it's such a tender time where I even remember during that time in my life, I just was so not sexually confident. I did not know how to express my needs and wants and desires nor deflect anything that didn't feel right. So yeah, I would kind of love to get your thoughts there. You hit on so many points. I'm going to try to remember them all. If we're being honest, there's no such thing as non-consensual sex, right? That's really rape, sexual abuse, sexual harassment. Like I know we need to talk about it, but really that's not sex. It's just rape. It's sexual abuse, it's sexual harassment. And these words, non-consensual sex, have served to protect the patriarchy and perpetrators. So that's my first thing. I loved what you said. How do we create communication dialogue around this? I hate that we have to keep thinking about how do I keep myself safe? Like that is just, we're still having the wrong conversations. How about, how do you not rape people? Like I've literally thought I'm going to make a bumper sticker and put it on all the cars I see that says, don't rape people. I just don't know how hard this is because I'm sick of survivors feeling like, how do I keep myself safe? How do I keep myself safe? I promise we are talking about this, but it's still the wrong conversation. How do we not let people rape people? How about that conversation? (laughs) 100%. I mean, we could just end there. Like no safety tactics, like just, yeah. So, but you mentioned it. How do we talk to our friends? And all of the research shows us that bystander reporting and collaboration is really the best way to stay safe and reduce perpetration. So strip down. If you see something, say something. And I know this is a phrase, but I cannot stress enough You have to be willing to step up for your friend. If you see that he or she is not being treated well, that they are not being treated well, say something. Tell him that you see him, that you see what's happening. How can I support you? So if more of us start saying something when we see something, if we ask our friends, was that okay? And our friend feels safe enough to say no, we know how to help them, whether that's reporting, whether that's getting them to the hospital, whatever, reporting to the authorities at the university, things will change. And I'm really sorry about that experience you had, and I'm sure it's still out there. And I know young people have so many more resources than certainly I did, than even you did. There's more resources about really what sexual health is, prevention resources, these fantastic apps that are all in service to sexual assault and rape prevention. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think another thing that stands out to me too, as I'll just kind of like curtain tail off of this is I remember that time in my life feeling like it was really hard to speak up because you didn't want to seem uncool or become a social outcast of any sense of the word. And to kind of like put a little bow on this story that happened to me and a group of friends was that there was a period of time where we were trying to handle the situation with other students in the Greek life community. And there got to a point where the individual who did get raped said, okay, enough is enough, and just went to the top and did a whole thing. The fraternity was kicked off campus eternally. But I just want to throw in there that it's not uncool to do, say, or speak up around this matter. It's so important. And in fact, even if people do get annoyed with you, because there were people who were annoyed and we're so pissed and we're like, oh my God, we're not going to have parties with this frat. Well, they're the best frat on campus. Da, 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 da. At the end of the day, who gives a fuck? 
first of all. And second, we watched all those people come back around and say thank you so much for actually kicking that fraternity off campus because we had rules around not having parties with them or we had a sister in our sorority who also had an experience and told our entire class after that came out. So thank you. And so I just want to say like, just to bust that down a bit, because that was something that I remember really hardcore facing, thinking like, what if I face social ostracization in this matter? It's so scary and big. And I'm glad you brought up this point. And if we're going to break the system, we have to do it in collaboration the system has functioned as it has for a long time. Me Too came around in 2017, 2018. The walls are crumbling down. All the perpetrators that we're, we're hearing about, I feel like, you know, it's almost weekly, but definitely monthly. There's somebody high up that you're like, okay, so the walls are crumbling, not quickly enough, but they are, but it's going to take our voices and really railing against what we know is wrong and supporting the people around us that we care about, and even those strangers that we don't know. Again, it's a really a courageous space to be, but I know if more of us do it, more people will do it. Mm, I totally agree with you. Oh, this has been so great. I want to ask you a bit because I've heard you speak on the concept of reimagination and really beginning a process of reimagining what our ideal sex life can be, regardless of what traumas we've been through or experiences we've had, like we've been kind of chatting as a through line through this conversation, putting that, reclaiming that power and that pleasure for ourselves. So I really would love to hear what reimagination is kind of in your line of work in sexual trauma, but I'd also love to hear about what it really does to our brain. Like how does that work in the rewiring and repatterning process? Sure. Well, the first step with this is separating the past from the present. So we really have to be in our body, in the present moment, taking in our surroundings, feeling the sensations on our skin. If we're with a partner, feeling what it feels like to sit with them. And what I mean by that is attunement. So it's really nervous system co-regulation. It sounds fancy, but it just basically think about when you sit with one person in your life versus how you feel when you sit with another person in your life. We feel different when we sit with different people. So it's it's like it is, again, what we talked about before, getting into our bodies, separating the past from the present. The past is when your trauma happened. The present is now where I know you're okay because you're sitting here in front of me or you're living this life, or you're in college, and I know it doesn't look perfect, and I don't expect it to look perfect, but you're really okay. The fact that you're on this path, that mantra, that was then, this is now. That was then, this is now. Just keep reminding yourself where you are coming into the moment. And the reimagining what sex life can be, and pleasure, um, reevaluating your relationships, who you're surrounding yourself with, reevaluating your relationship with food and exercise. And the reason I keep bringing this up is because I rarely meet a survivor that doesn't have some issue with food, exercise, and body image. Reevaluating your relationship with substances, perhaps, and I'm not advocating for sobriety, but just advocating, again, for the space of maintaining control and relinquishing control. Deciding what's sexy to you, not what the rom-coms tell you are sexy. Reevaluating, reimagining your sexuality. Are you straight or are you straight just because that's the choice that your parents and your family and your religion and your upbringing gave you? Take time to think about that. If you're straight, great. If you're not, that's great too. But that's what something I want you to be able to claim for yourself. And then what does sex 
look like for you? Is it the common ideal of penis and vagina? Or will sex never include penetration for you, even if you have a penis, even if you have a vagina? What if it just doesn't include that? It's all good. So it's really like taking in all of the information we have about ourselves, coming to terms with what we know is true for us, what feels most authentic, and moving towards that. I love that so much. And I'm curious kind of about like what happens on like a neurological wave when you do start this reimagining and reevaluating process. Like what is actually happening with our neural pathways? They learn new grooves. And the reason I do the work I do is because I know people can change and I get pushed back so much. Like people don't change, people don't change. I change so profoundly. I feel like if you knew where my life was 15, 20 years ago and saw where my life is now, you'd be like, okay. And by no means is life perfect now, but it's much, much different. I felt like I was so fucked up. People can change. I can change. I'm not overstimulated, hyper-regulated. For those people that are really depressed, they can come back up to a normal range or feel joy in life again. For those people who are living in constant anxiety and having panic attacks, they can regulate their nervous system down a little bit. So they're not always feeling like that. You and I have talked before, I'm really, when I'm doing work with people, I'm looking at their nervous system and where we find that groove for them that just feels flexible and adaptable, not understimulated or overstimulated. My gosh, you're bringing tears to my eyes because I just, I so believe that. And I know that people go through extreme hardships, but there is a new page And there is opportunity to regulate that system again and find joy and reclaim your pleasure. Yes. So this was a beautiful conversation. Thank you for just showing up with 100% of just you and your energy and your knowledge and your wisdom. I just I so appreciate it. So please tell us where we can connect with you and, of course, get a copy of the book. Again, thank you for having me on and being such a beautiful supporter for survivors. So you can find me at my website. It's just drhollyrichmond.com, D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. On Instagram, Facebook, at Dr. Holly Richmond. You can find Reclaiming Pleasure on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. On December 14th, it's going to be on Audible. I'm so excited about that. So yes, you can listen to it. And then in January and February, you'll be seeing an online course for me called Reclaiming Pleasure. So it loosely follows the book, but there's more exercises in it and some different stories. And then in February, March, you'll be getting Reclaiming Pleasure, the lab, which is group coaching online because of that connection piece that you and I talked so much about. We know that group therapy, group coaching does so much to help survivors heal and thrive. What an exciting 2022. That's really amazing. Well, everybody absolutely go get your copy of this book. I'm linking it in the show notes below. And I can't wait for all those amazing programs to come out in the new year. And let me know how I can help you in any way. Just here to support. Thank you. First, before any of that, I'm taking my rest, which is where you and I started, right? (laughs) Taking a rest before diving back into that work. Um, Yes. So, and I hope you do too. I hope you enjoy the holidays. Thank you again for having me on and I look forward to more conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you later. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. 
Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.